Hello, and welcome to the Ya No Journal Club. In each episode, we dissect an article from the psychiatry literature with the goal of understanding both the clinical importance of the study and key aspects of research design and methods. We start with a single confusing sentence from the paper and go from there with the goal of getting from, yeah, no, I don't get that, to yes, yes, this totally makes sense. I'm Dr. Adrian Dela Cruz. I'm an assistant professor in the Department of Psychiatry and associate program director for the psychiatry residency with the Peter O'Donnell Brain Institute at UT Southwestern Medical Center in Dallas. Hi, I'm Adam Brenner. I'm professor of psychiatry at UT Southwestern and vice chair for education and adult psychiatry program director. Hi, I'm Marissa Toops. I am a independent psychiatrist and now an affiliate clinical assistant professor at UT Southwestern Department of Psychiatry. The paper that we will be talking about, the authors are the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium. The title of the paper is Genome-Wide Association Study Identifies 30 Loci Associated with Bipolar Disorder. This was published in Nature Genetics in 2019, volume 51, pages 793 to 803. Dr. Brenner, do you have a confusing sentence from this paper? Oh, this was a target-rich environment for (laughs) for me. Since I have to choose, on page 796, the sentence says, we note that the significance levels were assigned to genes by physical proximity of the SNPs and do not imply that significant genes are causal for bipolar disorder. Dr. Toops, do you understand that sentence? I do. I pretty much understand that sentence as well. And one thing we can talk about is that SNPs are known as SNPs. Do you know what that stands for, Adam? Single nucleotide polymorphisms. Yes. And do you know what that is? Uh, Those are single nucleotide polymorphisms. (laughs) (laughs) So... So, so a spot on the DNA that is different between different people, a, a single nucleotide, and a, normally yeah. an A, T, G, or C. Yes, and those of us in the know just called them SNPs. <laughs> right. This is not a straightforward paper, right? The fact that it was published in Nature Genetics, this is not a journal that most psychiatrists are often reading, but this is the kind of work that's being done on the genetics of psychiatric illnesses. We have, you know, now industry popping up around psychiatric genetics, and so it's important for psychiatrists to get out of training with basic genetic literacy. Um, Also, we'll post in the show notes, there's a very helpful review article that was published in JAMA in 2008 uh, by Pearson and Manalio called How to Interpret a Genome-Wide Association Study. Um, It's a very helpful primer and guide for the perplexed. The overall goal of this work, of this particular paper, is to identify gene variants, SNPs, single nucleotide polymorphisms, differences in spots on DNA, um, that are more common in people with bipolar disorder than than in people without bipolar disorder. The long-term hope is that by doing this, we'll be able to identify genes and pathways that are involved in bipolar disorder. One of the other hopes of this kind of work is that if we understand the genetics and the particular gene differences in people with bipolar disorder, we can then use those to create better animal models, which we can then use to better study mechanisms of bipolar disorder. And the other hope is that this work will also allow for the development of diagnostic tests and predictors of outcome that are based on disease biology. So lots of hopes for what this can accomplish. So many. I think the first thing to start with is the authors who are listed as the Psychiatrics Genomics Consortium. 
and not by individual names. So the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium is a group of more than 800 investigators from more than 150 institutions in 40 plus countries. And they have a number of different working groups on different psychiatric disorders. I think it's important to understand about what they did is that the Genomics Consortium, these are individual labs who all collect data. So basically they're independent investigators. They're not paid to do this. They just get together and decide we're gonna share data with each other and pool. So it's, it's organized spontaneously from investigators who do genetics. And so by doing that, that pooling of data across all of these investigators, they were able to pull together the whole genome sequences from 20,352 people with bipolar disorder and 31,358 controls who are of European descent. And the data came from 32 cohorts from 15 countries in the US, Europe, and Australia. So it's not that they specifically collected data for this study. It was these investigators had all of this data that they had collected for other studies, and now they're going to pool it together to have a much bigger sample size. Basically, it's a meta-analysis. Some of the things that differ a little bit between the cohorts, right, like what country the people are from, how exactly they defined bipolar disorder. Um, Sometimes it was DSM-4, sometimes it was ICD-10 criteria. Um, It was all diagnosis of bipolar disorder was established through a structured instrument or by clinician-administered checklists or medical record review. And we know that the controls did not meet criteria for bipolar disorder And in most of the cohorts, the controls did not have any lifetime psychiatric diagnosis. Much of this paper is about the kinds of analyses that are needed to separate signal from noise and to identify the differences in in gene that are specific to bipolar disorder and are not identifying other kinds of differences like common gene variants that are different between people in the US and people in Australia. So most of this data comes from what they call a SNP chip, which is a prepackaged thing that will test for which base is at these different locations in the genome. And it'll tell you with a reasonable degree of certainty, whether that at this particular location, a person has an A or a T or whatever it is, right? So Um, But it doesn't tell you everything about the whole genome. It's just these locations. But these days, each of these chips probably contain 250,000 to 500,000 places in the genome. So they're big. And, you know, so, but you get back basically this numeric value that is a degree of certainty that the base of this location is a certain thing. And so then the first thing you do is you get rid of any ones that had too much uncertainty in them. So if it was only an 80% chance it's a T, then you probably throw that out. And so then you get this list of like 250,000 SNPs in in all of these people. But because this data was pulled from people who use different chips over different periods of time, some of them are not going to be present in all of the subjects. And, And so then what you have to do is you say, well, how are these SNPs like part of what is their relationship to the genome? And like, what is their relationship to a gene? So does anybody have... This is a trick question. Like, what is the working definition of a gene? Like, what is a gene? So, so in high school biology, we would have learned start codon to stop codon. Right, right. And then there's introns and exons, right? So the exons are the parts that eventually become proteins. And then there's these introns that people used to think didn't do very much, but now we know they're mostly regulatory regions. And then there's 
regions before the gene starts upstream of the gene that are also regulatory regions. But then the more we've learned about DNA, we figured out that it does a lot of three-dimensional conformation changes and there can be regulatory regions that appear to be very far away, but when the DNA curls up, it's close by. You're looking at both the expressed parts of the genes and in theory, all the regulatory regions, if we know what those are, which we usually don't, all for 100%. You have to then think about some regions that there's SNPs that may pop up a bunch of times and we don't know what those regions do. But so somebody has gone through and they probably had a process where they used references from like the Thousand Genomes Project and these other big things to sort of define which spaces in the genome, which codons belong to which genes. And it gets even more complicated than that. <laughs> so, because if two SNPs may, two different chips may choose SNPs that are close by each other in the same region of uh, DNA, and they include those in the chips as what they would call a tag SNP. That's because chunks of DNA are inherited together. So you don't actually need all of the, every single codon. You just look at these ones and you say, this SNP tags this area. So if Every time like there's the same little word, you may only need to look at one snip in that word that one codon in the word that, you know, like somebody has, instead of A and T, somebody has apple and somebody has tree, right? So like you only need to look at the A and T and the rest of it's implied. And that's a little risky maybe to assume that, but they do in the math. So so can the, the snips that they're looking at on these chips, they, they can be either from a protein coding part or from a regulatory part? The majority of them are regulatory actually. So it's just that mutations and protein coding sections of the DNA tend to be very bad and have large effects <laughs> and make the protein, you know, people don't live when you have, it's severe genetic disorders of protein coding. And so those are like relatively uninteresting now that we know about most of them, right? So most of those, just the things that you wouldn't call a mutation, like it causes a severe disease that are just variants, those are in regulatory regions and they affect the gene by subtly affecting how much of that protein is produced or the form or, the protein is produced in. Or like how well it couples to its second messenger system. Right. So, right, it functions or is made or any of those things, correct. That, that kind of makes an intuitive sense about psychiatric disorders where- Yes, it does. They're, you know, on, they often see them on spectrums and people and families have more or less kind of, of the phenomena of whatever it is that's running in the family, so that- Yeah, and, but so basically there's a lot of mathematical assignment of the data they have conceptually to what it means to be in the genome and in a gene. And they have to sort of do all of that before they can even do, you know, there's, that's all in the background and there's pages and pages of methods. And the other important thing that they have to do is try to control for other types of things with Maybe people in the United States have different um, genetics than people in Australia. And if somehow the data is non-randomly, you could find just some sort of thing of being, a, you know, a mixed, more American, European compared to a more British, European people in Australia, you could find differences that have nothing to do with the disease. They're just from the population. And they call that population stratification. And it can cause big problems in this type of study. So they do a whole lot of math to control for that. And that's frankly why they only chose white people of European descent, which we could argue is a huge mistake from the like 
bigger picture, but right now we don't have large cohorts of um, genomes from non-white European people um, because most of the work is done in Europe. Right. And it's why like early genetic work was done in very restricted genetic populations. Like you'd see like Han Chinese mm-hmm. or Ashkenazi Jews, because the background DNA within that group was thought to be quite similar and made it yeah. easier to identify things that were specifically related to disease and not part of background group differences. So 80% of the paper is we did all of this stuff to control for all this stuff. So they start with this 20,000 people with bipolar disorder and 31,000 controls. And they look at what are the gene differences between those people. And they come mm-hmm. up at that point with 794 autosomal genes and 28 X chromosome genes that are seem to be associated with bipolar disorder. Not really. <laughs> Go ahead. I mean, okay, so if you look at the actual threshold for statistical significance that they a priori said they would use, only 19 genes met that threshold. So then they said, well, maybe we'll just relax the threshold for now. And they did that. So then they got this like 800 something genes, but they didn't really using their own declared threshold, it was 19. All right, so now they have a separate sample of 9,412 people with bipolar disorder and 130,760 controls. So so one thing to note here is they've totally shifted the balance of how many people with bipolar disorder they have versus how many controls. This is again about signal to noise and making sure that you've got like a really big background sample for what is not bipolar disorder that you're going to compare against. And so they've got these 794 autosomal genes and 28 X chromosome genes that they're now going to reassess in this new set of sample. When they do that, there were 30 loci that remain significantly different between people with bipolar disorder and controls. That's the headline finding of the paper that says 30 loci different. It's like you, you know I'm going to argue about that again. They, yeah. they, they really didn't. Now, I can't. I didn't write down how many it was that were really significant between both. It's very few. <laughs> so the, the authors then note that 10 of the loci they identified had been identified in previous work, which is like reassuring. That's right? reassuring, yeah. Um, and that 20... Um, had not been previously associated. So, okay, so so actually where the 30 comes from. Those are the top 30 with the most significant p-values in the combined sample. So in fact, so, so the, the Psychiatric Genomics Consortium, when they got together before they did anything, they said, every single paper we have to do has to have a discovery cohort and a replication cohort. They're like, that's the gold standard, that's what we're gonna do. In this paper, Really, this headline reports on the whole sample together, which is totally violating the spirit of supposedly having a discovery cohort and a replication cohort. Because so when you look at the table, which is on 795, the the genes that are listed there, the 30, all have nice significance values in the combined sample. But you can, and they almost all have what they're calling significant values in the replication sample, except they didn't use a corrected threshold for significance there. But only like eight of them or nine of them have significance in the original cohort using the correct significance threshold that was a priori created for this study. So, So, 
it, they are playing fast and loose with their own naively, optimistically, rigorously standards that they came up with before they did any of the study. So, so the other way that I would phrase this is as a push-pull between type one and type two error. Well, right. I mean, I think they just didn't, when they started off, everyone thought this was going to be easier than it turned out to be, right? So they kind of said, well, maybe we don't need to be as overly rigorous, which is to say we avoiding type two error as we thought that we did, we were going to be able to be. Yes. So, so let me just say for 30 or 40 years, people have been saying, oh, we thought psychiatric genetics was going to be easier than this. Yes. Yes. <laughs> Yes. Like they started off with standards that were extremely tight, thinking that we would find SNPs that eat more easily than we have. So I do think it's worth looking in depth at this table because looking at the table actually gets us some back to our original starting sentence because here's where they have actually listed the genes, right? And the starting sentence is sort of a disclaimer about what the genes are. Mm-hmm. So the first thing to note, the thing that says like RS and then a whole bunch of numbers, that's like a physical location in DNA. Yeah, if you combine that with the chromosome and this is like giving the address of this SNP. Um, so then they're going to tell you what the nucleotide difference is, which is that A1 versus A2. So controls versus bipolar. In people with bipolar disorder, we observed this nucleotide at this frequency, and we observed this other nucleotide in a different frequency in controls. Like that, the, that the table is telling you. And then it has the gene name, right? The presumed gene, gene. name. Right. And, and, and also you'll notice that then it says base pairs. So it's actually saying like that SNP is the tag SNP for a section of DNA, which is 150, if you look at the first line, 150,138,699 bases long. And they've tagged that section of DNA with a SNP RS7544145. So that, and they look at that explicitly at that um, difference, but they believe that that difference is representative of a sequence that is could be as long as 150 million base pairs. And they associate that sequence in turn with this gene, which is PLEKH01. If they had told us with that lead SNP SNP um, where it was located, why do we need to know about this long range of base pairs, the 150 million? Because so probably that section of DNA is basically inherited as a chunk and it, that SNP represents a different, those SNPs are just representative. They literally used to call it a tag SNP. Now they don't use that term as much anymore, but, but it's all imputed. They think it's this SNP, but they're saying to the best that we know, the variant that we're interested in is somewhere in that 150. So, so think about like the whole length of the base pair is some like standardized sentence that we often say, right? Yes. Like, good yes. morning, nice to meet you right? And what they actually tagged was to meet. And they are saying that every time we see to meet, we think it's good morning, nice to meet you. Yes. Okay. Yes. Because, you know, DNA is, is uh, you know, you, you uh, give to your offspring your 
whole chromosome. So that DNA is all together. It's not just randomly um, all mixed up, right? And so there is this crossing over where um, chromosome DNA is shuffled, but that only happens at like relatively few points in the chromosomes. Um, and so most of the time DNA is inherited in big chunks. It's not inherited in small. And they call that to be totally confusing and opaque linkage, linkage disequilibrium. But why they don't just say like chunk inheritance or joint inheritance or something like that, that makes sense. I don't know. And you, you probably learned the term linkage disequilibrium in either high school or college biology, right? It's the idea that genes that are physically next to each other, physically close to each other, are all inherited together because there's not that many different places at which crossing over happens. Because linkage disequilibrium exists, it's why if we tag to meet, we can say this probably contains good morning, it's nice to meet you. And it's good because if we it wasn't like that, then we would have to whole genome sequence every single genome and we would only have sequenced a few thousand genomes total so far, right? I mean, the, the fact that it works like this allows us to use this type of method where we can get many more genomes in. But then it also leads to this disclaimer that is the starting sentence, which is, yes. <laughs> we, think th we think this sequence that we have tagged is part of this larger base pair region and is associated with this gene, but we can't be totally sure. Right, you can't be sure it's exactly that SNP because of the way it works. So the SNP is chosen as a representative. And in many of these cases, because you have to assign it to a gene and it may that may be extremely clear which gene it's part of and it may not be extremely clear. And in fact, there's one of them on the list in the top 30 that's just said, they say intergenic, meaning they can't assign it to a gene. So it does make, leave some, some um, uncertainty. What I'm getting is, is that the take home for me about the sentence is that we have this incredibly highly technical uh, paper that's where they, they do these procedures that are, that they have to be very careful about exactly how they're defining. But at the end, they have to make sure that I, the reader, understand that there's just an element of uncertainty that's just built into this. Because, because they can be highly precise about the SNPs that they're checking and knowing which ones that they're checking. But, but there's a degree of uncertainty about really what does that represent in terms of actual genes that it's connected to. Yes. And that doesn't even get to the uncertainty about what does it mean and why does this matter? Right, that doesn't even get to causality. <laughs> That's still just the uncertainty about correlation. In terms of my trying to go from no to yeah, uh, I, I think that my summary of this is that, that the paper seems to be saying, we are slowly getting there, but this is gonna take more time. There are two overarching sort of theories about why we are here. One is that these disorders are inherited in a way that is not in the germline DNA particularly. Like there's, we have to broaden our ideas of what inheritance is. It's epigenetic or something else. Like inheritance is other done otherwise. But I also think that some of it is just that when we understand how much better and much tighter about like, what are these regulatory regions? Which ones matter? What is a gene? Like, what should we say counts as this gene? Then 
when we have more clarity about that, some of these things, I think then we'll start seeing more results. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Yeah, No Journal Club. Prediction of the Yeah, No Journal Club is supported by the American Board of Psychiatry and Neurology Faculty Innovation and Education Award, awarded to me, Adrian Dela Cruz. The opinions and views shared in this podcast are the views of the individuals and do not represent views of any institution. Specifically, the opinions expressed do not reflect those of the ABPN, UT Southwestern, the O'Donnell Brain Institute, the UT System, or the state of Texas. You can find the Yano Journal Club on your favorite podcast app. Please rate us and write a review. Visit our show page at www.yahnojournalclub.simplecast.com. That's Y-E-A-H-N-O journalclub.simplecast.com to learn more and find links to the article abstracts. We love your suggestions. You can email us directly at yahnojournalclub at utsouthwestern.edu. Do you need materials to run a journal club? You can find our journal club superstar curriculum the AdPert virtual training office, or by visiting our show page. Keep listening so you can stop worrying and love the literature.